फर्नीचर कंपनी कॉल्ड बारो इन मुंबई फ्रॉम फिल्म प्रोडक्शन डिजाइन Bombay-based Siddharth followed his heart into making furniture that told a story. Siddharth's aesthetics are highly influenced by simplicity and classic lines of mid-century modernism. And today we are here to discuss with him the origin of Baro and its philosophy and some more gyan on design. So thank you Siddharth for giving us your time and it's a real pleasure to have you on audio gyan. Well, thank you Kedar for having me. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I mean uh, I've recently probably a year back i stumbled upon baro and i've been following the kind of work you're doing following you on instagram as well uh and i have few questions regarding uh the product philosophy what you follow and more about baro and generally your thoughts about design so i've come up with few questions and let's see how we uh, take this forward sure right cool Uh, so on your website, uh, you said old school patience uh, is the I'll quote old school patience uh, is the key to good design. So can you start by telling us uh, what do you mean by that and what's your general philosophy behind design? Uh, well, it, it, well, look, it, it's in two parts. So if you look at uh, old school patience, what I'm trying to arrive at is the is. is the freedom one had earlier in terms of the time taken to do something so you took a fair number of time because not everyone was breathing down your neck saying that you know i wanted yesterday so you could do what you did with patience and this is something i tell all the people who work with me you know especially the karikars that the difference between something made well and a disaster is 15 minutes <laughs> So if you take that 15 minutes extra you get that joint right and that piece of furniture will last a lifetime as opposed to rushing it by 15 minutes and you reduce the life by 15 years. So that's the patience that I speak of and whether you apply it to the actual uh, construction of things where the process of making something benefits from the amount of time spent on it like a polish process takes about a week and I I could do it in 3 days but it wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. you know but you need for the layers to dry and we use an oil based finish an oil and wax based finish so and we don't cure it so you let it breathe and sort of dry naturally and it takes longer in the monsoon and of course we do have clients saying that oh come on where's the product why isn't it ready but i always implore them for more time because we can deliver a better product and that's the patience that i speak of and similarly i mean when it comes to design of it the we are often in a rush to find the quickest and easiest solution now the easiest solution is something that i am in concurrence with yes you should always look for the easiest solution because it's also the most efficient solution but the quickest is not something that i necessarily go with because the quickest solution may not be the easiest it may be something that is part of your conditioning and it's not something that you have arrived at by peeling layers it's probably the f- top few layers that you you know and if you haven't raised enough questions you're not likely to solve 
a, a problem to its most efficient conclusion. So my way of looking at a problem is to, and by problem I mean, see, I mean, design begins with a problem. You have a problem to solve, you, you go ahead and you solve that problem. So when you look at a problem, we look at it, it, it en masse and say, oh my God, that's a big problem, how do I solve it? But uh, the way I go about it is to try and break that problem down into a billion sub-problems. And billion, of course, being metaphoric. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you look at a problem in its minute sub-problems, it's always easier to solve a simple problem. Correct. You know, so if you break it up into a smaller, sub, easier problem, you don't get overwhelmed by the problem itself. So the trick is not to find the answer. The trick is to find the question. Wow. Hmm. If you can find the question, you will find the answer automatically. The answer is not hard to find. But you have to ask the right questions. And those questions is what takes time. Hmm. So when you're going through the process of breaking down a problem, a design problem, you have to invariably ask as many questions as you possibly can. And that's what takes time. And that's the patience you need to be able to ask that many questions. Mm -hmm. And very often when you ask a question and the solution may conflict with your previous question. Uh, okay. And, and just going deeper into the same question, uh, because this, so you spoke about the, the Karigar itself to give him enough time mm -hmm. uh, and also at a pre-production level or just at a strategic level to ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. but there's also a state in between where you want to just keep iterating on the design itself mm -hmm. uh, and that journey is endless right because it every is. day every day you uh, you think about it and you can see a more optimal solution yeah that's because so, you haven't asked enough questions okay 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 <laughs> so if you had oh, asked so, those questions to begin with mm -hmm. See, there, so there you are, navigate. So you navigate or guide those questions uh, to be like a guiding principle while you are designing it, while you are executing it. Yeah, and I mean, like I said earlier, you have to keep peeling the layers, right? Hmm. And sometimes we don't see the layers that we've peeled. We just feel that you know we've uncovered it all. And while the process of making you know unfolds, you're like oh, I didn't see that. And there are times when you don't see it, right? Mm -hmm. But the endeavor is to look for it. And the more efficient you get at looking at problems beforehand, the more efficient your process. Mm -hmm. And uh, Baro being a small firm, we don't have the luxury of creating prototypes over six months. Correct. Nine out of ten times, our prototypes end up in the shop. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we make something the first time and it's at the shop. I mean, to begin with, we didn't even have the luxury of nine out of ten. It was ten out of ten. Mm -hmm. And now that we've been around a few years, we, we do take, the, okay, let this be an experiment and go from there but the endeavor is still to make that the final product mm -hmm. interesting and uh, and so is that does that happen that you have asked enough questions but still while designing you come up with more questions so how do you stop that journey also uh, i think that's the 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 other side of the coin is the simple side hmm. so you try and keep it simple okay. so by arriving at the 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 solution, the final solution should be a simple solution. Mm. So too many questions also means too many answers. And if there's too many answers, the chances are that they will conflict. You know, there will be some kind of conflict because it's like uh, strength versus, uh, say, delicateness. Mm. Right? Do you want it to be delicate or do you want it to be strong? Now you want it to be both. So you 
come at a meeting point where you shed a lot of excess flab and say, okay, this much is enough mm-hmm. in terms of questions, in terms of strength, in terms of being delicate. And th- that's the journey that you're always navigating. Mm-hmm. What do you drop and what do you keep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are no solutions, like only trade-offs. So you deal yeah, with them. absolutely. Yeah. Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I can see this obviously, and I expected this conversation to go slightly philosophical as well. Uh, so uh, the next thing which I want to ask you is, you are attracted towards like wabi sabi form. Mm-hmm. So can you uh, tell our listeners and me also like what is that and uh, which part of that philosophy uh, just attracts you, or and how does that translate into your work? Uh, I'm I'm not a you know, an authority on wabi-sabi, so I won't get into what wabi-sabi is. Mm. I can give you a general idea of what it is. I mean, it's a philosophy that uh, is supposed to have originated around the tea ceremonies in Japan back in the 17th and the 16th centuries. Okay. Uh, I don't think it was... I, I think it has certainly been refined over a period of time into its modern take, and which is that um, beauty in captured by uh, anything that we see and that we, you know, the world around us is not a function of its perfection, but rather a a function of its imperfection caused by the passage of time. Mm. Mm. So you take, you know, natural forms, you take uh, the the passage of time, which creates its own sort of uh, motion and form and patina and, you know, whatever time will bring into something is something that you cannot replicate. You know, that's something that you cannot control. So it's part of this whole whole Zen philosophy of allowing the universe to unfold as it unfolds. Mm -hmm. There's only so much control you can, you know, have. And the, the wise man sort of, you know, you can't, take a river and start channeling a new direction, it'll just be a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. What you need to figure out is how do we take that course and, you know, irrigate your field, use gravity, you know, use the natural flow of things. Why fight against them? Mm -hmm. So when, so it's in a bit of a dichotomy with this whole uh, new age, perfect uh, sense of what things ought to be which are precise and symmetrical and absolutely... I mean, I use a lot of symmetry in my work still, yeah. but I try and bring it with a certain sense of wabi-sabi, uh, where primarily in the form of the wood that we use. Hmm. We use a lot of old reclaimed wood. Hmm. I mean, not a lot of, we only use reclaimed wood. Hmm. And that has come from, you know, we had a lot coming from, say, the mantrale. It was an old uh, library that was broken down and the shelves from there came in and we had a few products made from there. Mm. So it came with its nails and screws and, you know, wedges and holes and all of that. And we celebrate that rather than saying, no, it's that's not how it should be. Mm. I mean, I'm not deciding what it should be. I'm saying this is how it is. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So the conflict is reduced. The conflict now comes with trying to convince somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's saying that this is also beautiful. You know, why do we want to make it all perfect? Because I think perfection wears out very quickly. So imperfection is something that you constantly look into far, far deeper because you'll always find more layers. Mm-hmm. Perfection would be a reduced, uh, simplified, you know, uh, base version of imperfection is what I call it. Yeah. I don't know, maybe this, uh, like, 
in the follow up question this will slightly i'll put my contradicting thought around it but mm-hmm. yeah how does that translate uh, into the baros furniture you mentioned um so so is that a constant uh thread which runs across while designing or it it just comes naturally babi sabe yeah uh it's i i mean i always keep it in mind now it's not to everyone's taste unfortunately and people want polish to be perfect and it to be uniform and i'm like but guys that's the natural wood grain i mean i'd rather not fight it and that's what we do we keep it naked hmm. we keep it as transparent as possible so that we're celebrating what we see but of course you do have clients so it's a kind of a tightrope walk that you have to manage hmm. where we like okay fine that's what you want we'll give that to you hmm. but uh, given a free world given uh, and i mean we, we do try and at the end of the day we still need the business to allow us to do what we do correct right so like all endeavors of art you kind of you know try and walk a line which transcends <laughs> both worlds okay correct so yeah uh, coming to the perfection and perfection part and also the next Yeah, segue into the next question is very um, personal to me because I keep swinging between this ethnic. Um, I may not call it wabi sabi, but it's like unknowingly following something like that, like having a natural flow to things and keeping it as old vintage look and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I swing to the other extreme of going all minimalistic, um, or maybe something like. uh teeter ramps ka furniture and like very very uh like cutting uh, right angles and simple mm-hmm. so so first question is that uh if you say imperfection uh, sorry perfection is like time bound thing mm-hmm. so then how does like a person like teeter ramps working for 40 years on that same piece of furniture iterating evolving uh do you think that will have like isn't it like timeless uh that's not what i meant when i said uh, time bound and timeless so okay. the when it's uh okay so i mean okay you i'll half agree with you let's say <laughs> i'll I'll, <laughs> i'll come on the meeting ground and yeah. i so there are things that are extremely simple and are absolutely perfect the way they are in their simplicity hmm. but that's not necessarily i mean like a for example a circle is a perfect form correct right yeah and uh, the the difference comes from the fact that once you've seen the circle and you've seen it in its perfection it takes a very evolved mind to look at a circle every time and say oh my god that's perfect hmm. most of us most of us in our day to day lives we look at a circle and just get bored of it yeah take it for granted take it for granted yeah right so it takes a higher level of evolution of an individual to actually appreciate the simplicity of its perfect form mm. and that's i mean and i'm and i'm including myself in the other category where i'm saying that you know i do look at a circle beyond a point and say oh my god it needs some play mm-hmm. right so maybe 40 years down the line i will subscribe to the philosophy where all i need to do is make a circle <laughs> but yet i'm 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 yet to get there mm-hmm. so i am still in the process of what i call uh, playfulness and simplicity mm. so that's a very strong philosophy that we follow at baro as well as far as design is concerned uh we keep it simple but we keep it playful mm. so i i'm i'm a little cheeky in my uh, 
you know, just uh, I, I like to call myself slightly cheeky in my interaction with the world. Mm-hmm. I push boundaries. I I tease. I uh, I bring about a sense of imbalance in order to create a balance because mm-hmm. balance is just not there, mm. right? And you push a boundary to create an imbalance, and that imbalance is the play. So you just offset it a little. You make something tapered where you can make it straight. You you uh, you keep it intriguing. You keep the interest alive. Mm. So when you keep peeling the layers, you you know you arrive at a circle eventually. Mm. But you have to get there. Correct. So like I said to you earlier, I'm still peeling the layers. So therefore, I'm I, I have to play right now. Wow, <laughs> this reminds me of one quote which has inspired me for a very long time. It's uh, like when you are when you don't know Zen, rivers are rivers, mountains are mountains. Mm-hmm. When you are learning Zen, rivers are not rivers, mountains are not mountains. Yeah. And when you have learned Zen, rivers are rivers, <laughs> mountains are mountains. mountains. So I think you nicely fit into that center bucket where there's a rebel, there's a conflict, there's yes. trying to pushing the boundaries. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. So I do know that rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains eventually. Mm. And I think that's the journey that I'm on. The the tricky part becomes convincing everyone else around you. Mm. You know, if I was making furniture for myself, I'd say this is a mountain and this is a river. Yeah. But I have to find my own conviction behind that. Correct. Yeah. In fact, I could see that uh, now that I recollect, uh, there's a nice bookshelf of glass uh, which I saw in uh, Baro. Mm-hmm. And instead of the straight lines for like a typical bookshelf which mm-hmm. you see in Ikea or any place mm-hmm. else, You've just slightly tilted some angles and given like a, a pentagon or a hexagon kind of a look and which completely mm. differentiates it from a regular one. Right. And that yeah. makes it intriguing also. <laughs> yeah, and that's the play that I'm talking about. You know, it, it's it's just that's the playfulness. It keeps us young. Mm. You know, a child's not looking for perfection. The mm. child's looking to play. <laughs> and sometimes it's nice to just be young and playful. Yeah. Cool. And the second part of the question which I want to ask you is that... Um, since these two things obviously are very uh, uh, exciting for a designer, keeping it minimalistic or at least for me, uh, keeping it simplest, simple, minimalistic and yet have a, some connection with the roots, mm-hmm. uh, some connection with the old age architecture, old age furniture, which we have seen. So is it possible to marry these both worlds or you have to polarize one or the other? Well, this we briefly spoke in the earlier call as well. Like, how do you marry? Because I've been doing my interiors uh, right. in my house mm-hmm. and I keep like, I want the tiles to be minimalistic, but uh, as the flooring uh, and maybe the walls could be completely white, but the furniture can be really Baro style or ethnic or... Uh, mid-century modernism kind of a thing. So how right. do you balance or how do you, is it possible even to marry these worlds? Well, I think uh, for me, I mean, and this is entirely a personal take, uh, mid-century modernism was the peak of uh, design as such because it, it refined a language from the excess to minimal and yet there was a lot of play. And uh, so, I mean, and, you know, if you look at, say, the 1950s, we're still talking 70 years ago. And 70 years is a, is a long time for, well, for a design to persist. And it is a test for, for sure as well. So um, when we look at, say, design movements, even from, say, the earlier, earlier 20th century or late 19th century, you had all your classic movements, then, you know, 
go closer towards, uh, say, Art Deco in the beginning of the 20th century. And that was the reduction of all the, the flourishes from... Uh, what's the movement before that? Bauhaus. No, so Bauhaus is the precursor to uh, Art Deco, right? Okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, Art Deco, Bauhaus kind of uh, bore the same sort of roots. Uh, shit, I'm, you know, the Mukha, Alphonse Mukha, uh, the artist. Uh, shit, I, I'm blanking out on the name. It's any, Anyway, it'll probably come back to me later. Hmm. So you had a lot of uh, excess flourishes ranging from, you know, the last several hundred years coming to a reduced form saying that it was unnecessary. So a lot of socio-economic and I think the fact that people started to make things in a, in a reduced span of time led to a reduction in the excess of mm. flourishes, which led to Art Deco and earlier Art Deco was a lot more uh, sort of uh, elaborate and more it has more flourish. And as it comes to the later years, it reduces in the amount of detail it carries. By detail, I just mean the excess flourishes. Hmm. And then from there, to the natural cost took it down to Bauhaus, which reduced them even further, reduced to saying that, okay, we need absolute minimal stuff, which arrived at mid-century. And then from there, you know, later became minimalist. You know, the Japanese minimalist was this whole movement which started, you know, became very popular and everyone had straight lines and boxes. And uh, So I try and marry a sense of so I, I don't look at it purely as an aesthetic hmm. what I look at it is in is the ease of making okay so the aesthetic follows from there but the aesthetic also comes from a lot of other aspects like uh, I have this other uh, design philosophy what I call the lightness of being you know play on that Kundera novel uh, so the lightness of being essentially dictates how visually you can reduce the volume of a given piece to make it lighter. Given the fact that the world is a really heavy place and it's getting heavier by the more people we add to it and the excess consumption and everything else. Uh, so how do we make our spaces lighter? So if you can have, uh, let's say, I mean, you know, a TV unit takes up a certain amount of volume. A dining table takes up a certain amount of volume. How do we, what do we do to make it visually lighter? Hmm. So, and strong yeah. and, and keep it strong as well hmm. right yeah and I don't necessarily mean delicate I just mean visually lighter hmm. so we have tapered edges for that we chamfer off the edges for that so we reduce any amount of bulk that is not necessary hmm. so we keep the points of uh, contact strong and you know th those are the you can't mess with that but where it's excess where it's flab we just reduce that so what it allows you to do is it allows you to breathe. You, will, you, you have a thinner tapered leg. Your sight, your vision goes under it, kind of lifting it higher. I, I don't know, it, it just sounds a bit mm -hmm. uh, metaphoric, but it, there is a lightness that comes in the given piece which makes you feel lighter because mm. there's, a, there's a reduced bulk in your space. Mm. And yet it serves the function. So that's my journey to arrive at a form. And I find a lot of mid-century follows this similar philosophy. I don't know if they call it the lightness of being or something that I concocted, but I think it's there. Mm. 
and a lot of Japanese minimalist uh, furniture has that. But I say that, you know, why have a, uh, a, a connecting piece of wood straight? Because it can be reduced in the middle or anywhere else, you know, depending on the, the construction technique that we use. But why not make it lighter? Hmm. And that is what allows me to arrive at a form. So I don't know if it's modernism or ancient or old or new, but yet it's it, it arrives at a form because of a philosophy that I follow, hmm. because of what it needs to be. Correct, correct, interesting. So, so, so sorry, uh, but does that mean there's a lot of wastage as well, or uh, you like if you find a great piece of wood? Mm-hmm. Um, and you feel that a particular piece of furniture may not need such volume of wood. Mm-hmm. So is it uh, is it just removing those unnecessary parts or reusing them someplace else as well? Well, we try and reuse as much as we can. Mm-hmm. But th- there are times when you can't, mm-hmm. when it just goes to waste. But the point still be, be I mean, you know, the story, the point is that and it's the whole like the whole argument that i have with your plate being full and people you know dying of starvation in africa i mean just because your plate is you you're throwing the food in the bin as opposed to eating it i mean they're still starving mm. right so just don't serve too much in the plate to begin with i can understand that but if it's there in your plate whether you throw it in the bin or whether you eat it it's still the same effect mm. right <laughs> so why eat it and you know become obese just don't eat it because I mean I understand don't serve yourself in the first place hmm. you know you let your eyes not be bigger than your stomach I get that philosophy hmm. but once it's on your plate whether you eat it whether you throw it in the bin effectively amounts to the same thing so if you are using a piece of wood that is connected and in the middle and if you keep it plain and simple it'll be there yeah. but if you want to make it lighter remove it hmm. you know remove a part of it so that is not an ex- that's not a wastage as far as I'm concerned. It's adding to the fact that it's lighter eventually, hmm. and somewhere that'll get used. Someone will use it for firewood, if at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so that's the. I mean, in India, we are, we are just we have such a strong sense of recycling. You know, we want to make use of every given little thing. I don't know from a bigger perspective of saving the planet, but from a necessity like we can do with all the you know. The surplus that we have mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's kind of a not a controversial but yeah a point of debate always because there are different school of thoughts and like uh, there are certain things which can be really controlled and which mm-hmm. cannot be and I think it's a subjective thing I think more uh, more if you get into it yeah like I mean you know I can take a straight leg huh. and you know if it's two inches on top I, the wood will invariably be an inch below if I'm tapering it mm. or three quarters. So I, what I try and do is I flip the two in a piece of wood so that you get both sides to it, right? Mm. So you take out two pieces in a wood piece that's three inches long. Mm. I mean, three inches wide. Mm. So because you flip it, right? But there are times when you don't do that and you've got two inches on top and two inches below, but you still need the leg to be, say, three quarters on the bottom of end, bottom end of it. So you have no reason but to shave it because that two-inch leg from, you know, if it's running from the top to the bottom, just doesn't look light. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. doesn't appeal to your aesthetic sense also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. So. Uh, so coming to the wood, which is my second last question, actually. Uh, 
I've like read uh, through your website also. You use a lot of reclaimed teak wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've done a bunch of interviews. In fact, uh, just uh, two weeks back, I met Aziz Kachwala, who's like who plays around with different materials, flexi ply and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, prior to that, I had discussed some th- parts uh, of bamboo with other professors from IDC and NID. Mm-hmm. So on the same lines, I just want a layman's perspective as to. Um, um as a layman as in not a academician who was studied wood in general mm-hmm. but from your you being as a designer um what is reclaimed teak for a layman and uh, what significance does it have in the indian context also well reclaimed is literally like uh, reclaimed wood in this case is um so wood that was used once so you know let's start with the tree the tree was there in a beautiful old at least 50 year old teak tree if not a 100 year old teak tree was designated to be cut it was cut chopped up into its components and there were rafters made out of it or doors made out of it or bookshelves like i'd mentioned earlier made out of it uh once that building is torn down there is a whole sub-economy that runs into place and says, okay, we can use a lot of this material. Hmm. From the rubble to the metal to the wood, there's a whole system that operates uh, which then takes these into, literally like scrap. And so they pull that wood out, they pull the metal out, they pull whatever else that's useful, and it goes into its designated markets. Hmm. So you have a market which sells you old ripped down uh, teak from old houses. Mm. So a lot of roofing was, you know, rafters with, uh, you know, shale on top or whatever, you know, some kind of a brick or a stone on top. So those rafters are very useful. Uh, Doors were made out of, you know, large wide planks of teak. So those then come into use. The advantage with that is that it doesn't have to be seasoned because seasoning of the wood essentially involves reducing the amount of natural moisture content that of a tree into wood so when you make furniture you don't want uh, the natural moisture that exists in a tree to continue in the wood mm-hmm. because it creates distortion and as the water sort of leaves the wood it bends it it warps it so it creates distortion and therefore affects your affects your furniture so uh, what happens now with new wood is that you season it Seasoning essentially means driving the moisture out. So you do it artificially today. Correct. Right? You put it into a, a seasoning plant where they smoke it, they produce heat, and it draws the moisture out. This is a process which nature takes care of. So for, they would have seasoned it to begin with and then left as it is for the next 100 years. And mm. there's nothing, no factory that can replicate it. Correct. You know, it's like, it's the best possible seasoning you can arrive at Mm. the other big factor is that wood that was used in the past was from extremely old trees large trees because there was an abundance at that time Uh, as a consequence of scarcity of wood as a consequence of uh, well the scarcity because of the excess demand now what has happened is now the average age of felling a teak tree is 30 years okay reduced from a minimum age of 50 Mm-hmm. So you don't let the tree mature enough. And you say, oh, it's ready in 30. But earlier, it wasn't a question of when it's ready. It's like, you know, a, a woman is ready to bear a child at 16, but that's not the age for you to have a child. Hmm. So 
that that's the idea of using old older tree back in the day today we don't have that luxury of saying okay let it mature for the next 20 years because then people are losing time and they're losing money mm-hmm. <laughs> so they'll cut it a lot quicker so the tree hasn't matured enough the wood hasn't become rich enough you'll find a lot of uh, uh, raw whitish kind of uh, texture to a lot of uh, teak that you find today mm. yeah and the grain hasn't gotten closer so this the, the quality of wood is essentially inferior mm-hmm. yeah so you prefer to use the one which is seasoned naturally seasoned naturally better quality of wood mm-hmm. and uh, my conscience is clear mm-hmm. because i love teak as much as i love i mean i love wood as much as i love trees mm-hmm. so it was a big you know how do you make furniture and i l- love wood so much i was like shit i don't want to make it out of anything else mm-hmm. so it it I, it's a i, I it's, i'm happy at the end of the day because i'm saying i'm not cutting a tree mm-hmm. and i'm still using all this glorious wood correct correct yeah yeah uh so sir i would like to conclude with one last question uh, and this is slightly a personal take rather than baro's mm-hmm. uh, journey uh that in your previous uh, stint you were working as a uh, film guy or a production guy mm-hmm. right and uh, now that you are into designing furniture and you've created baro uh, the way we see it right now so i want to just ask you that actually i want to connect with one quote which i had uh, stumbled upon like miles davis once said sometimes it takes years to sound like yourself right mm-hmm. so how did you land up in the taste or the type of furniture you design uh, is has got some signature of siddharth or but it's, it's it has got its own aesthetics right so how did you arrive at this particular style because it takes really long for designers to you know what i mean right yeah, 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 in yeah, yeah. in in painting uh, mm-hmm. it takes like years for a painter to start looking like he has done it and it's not a replica it's not a copy it's mm-hmm. not so similarly how did you arrive or have you arrived how is I don't the process like? no no but it still <laughs> yeah. definitely has a distinct style so right uh well for one uh, when i was doing film and i was doing uh, production design so that involved uh, creating sets very often it involved uh, creating furniture because it just wasn't available of the kind that you looking for so you ended up creating furniture for that and i was drawn extremely uh, strongly to mid century hmm. just because of its form it was just absolutely absolutely glorious it is pornography for me hmm. <laughs> and um, i think that stuck with me and uh, what also i mean my own philosophy of what Uh, you know i followed in terms of say making furniture seem to marry that i don't know i don't in, in know in depth necessarily the philosophy of the whole mid century movement i mean i know the the the, the sort of broad premise the broad premise and you know what's on the outside and all of that i of course i know all of that but uh, as i discovered my own reasons for doing what i'm doing i seem to be able to in reverse correlate to mid century Mm-hmm. so it arrived at that beautifully as well so it wasn't just form it was function it was form it was a philosophy and they all seemed to marry very well mm-hmm. uh then like i was saying earlier the the ease of making something because at the end of the day you want to make it uh, at a price that's affordable so we have to make the process simpler mm-hmm. so that again leads to a kind of a form mm-hmm. right 
uh, I think that became a part of the reason why it developed into what it developed. I was also influenced heavily by, so, uh, well, necessity at times as well. Like, for example, Bombay has extreme, uh, extremely high moisture content. And uh, by the time, if something's made in the monsoon, and we can't shut shop during the monsoon, of course. So whatever's made in the monsoon, by the time winter comes, I'd say two out of ten pieces develop a crack. Because the amount of moisture that the wood suddenly absorbs, and by the time winter comes, it contracts. Hmm. So it, it develops a crack. Uh, now, what I could use as a technique anywhere else in the world, I can't use in Bombay. Hmm. Because it just tends to crack. So I've had to uh, allow for a lot more expansion and contraction of wood, which is... Uh, so my... I, I mean, I, I study a lot of uh, Japanese techniques of furniture making. Hmm. And I mean, there's always YouTube for that. <laughs> it's great. Uh, so that allows... You because it's just wood and wood, and there's no screw, there's no nails, there's nothing else, right? So it just allows the wood to breathe, and that again dictates your form, and that dictates what you're going to end up, you know, what it's going to end up looking like. So I think these considerations, along with a certain aesthetic, allow a pro, uh, something to develop which you may not have necessarily visualized before, mm. but it arrives at it. So you are an observer along the process as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what leads to form. It's not, I can't you know, even, I mean, I used to paint as well. I don't paint as often as I used to, but half my paintings I couldn't see as, and when I finished them, I was like, Oh wow, this looks nice. You know? So it's, it's and I like that process mm -hmm. because then I'm not arriving at a given point from where I've begun and let it meander, let it flow. And you know, it, it'll arrive somewhere. And you have inputs from everyone else around you as well. Mm. And, you know, your colleagues, your, your other team and, you know, people. So it's a work in progress. And I don't think uh, what I've done earlier is necessarily the same as what I'm doing, say, even three or five years later. Mm. And it's a journey that will continue to grow. And I'm the kind of person who will like to constantly reinvent myself. So whether I, I don't think I'll ever arrive. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't necessarily know if I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very clear. So it's great. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think this is a good note to end this. Obviously, there's a lot more to talk and a lot to discuss about uh, baro or furniture making in general. Uh, but yeah, just given the time. Uh, so thank you, Siddharth. Uh, just on the concluding note, if people have to follow baro, it's uh, on Instagram. It's on Instagram. Yeah, yes. it's baro on Facebook. India. Baro dot India, I think. Baro dot dash dot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not really into social media. Yeah, I'll I'll yeah. tag it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I would tell the listeners to go and visit. Uh, there's a nice showroom in Sunmill Compound. That what, is right. Anywhere, any place else? No, we we uh, right now just here. We have a few. We have a presence in Bangalore mm -hmm. at uh, Purple Turtle. We have a presence in Goa in a shop called Nagila. So we keep our furniture there. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, Baro is more than just furniture. Hmm. Baro, we try and uh, include as much as possible of, uh, say, we use, we're promoting a lot of folk art. Mm -hmm. What, uh, you know, it's, you, it's not accessible really. And we try and get all the master craftsmen, artists hmm. to come in, uh, you know. So ranging from Potachitras to Pichwais to uh, uh, Gond artists to, you know, all the 
traditional Indian folk art mm-hmm. we're trying to promote. So a lot of it is there. We have a lot of carpets. We have a lot of lights. We have a lot of... So it's a home store. We have a lot of fabric. And the 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 underlying principle behind all of this is that they're all driven by a certain amount of uh, passion behind the traditional. Mm-hmm. In techniques, in terms of form, in terms of the philosophy, old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very contemporary at the at the end of it. Correct. Yeah, the the end result is extremely contemporary. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I missed one important question. What does baro mean? Oh, well, <laughs> baro actually means several things, but uh, originally the reason why we chose baro is that the address of uh, of our shop is uh, 12 Sunmill compound and baro in Bengali means 12. Oh. And my uh, partner Srila uh she's bengali and she's like you know it's great let's just call it baro and it it's it's an intriguing sounding word mm-hmm. it it's a beautiful looking word because the 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 typology of uh, those those four letters looks very nice as well so i was drawn strongly to that phonetically also sounds phonetically it sounds really nice and it has a lot of intrigue mm-hmm. you know so that's why like you know people ask as to why mm-hmm. <laughs> baro and what does it mean yeah. and it's hard to pinpoint as to what it is mm-hmm. and as we later went around discovering what baro means in other languages it means a lot in a lot of other languages like in kannada i believe it means come oh okay yeah it has a meaning in uh, uh, in a language from mali so it has different uh, e- even yeah and even uh, i think in uh, rajasthan someone said to me that you know baro means something else mm-hmm. so it has different meanings in different languages and Yeah so yeah. we just leave it to anyone's imagination superb superb all right uh, thank you siddarth for giving your time and it was really wonderful talking to you i hope to have you again on audio again sometime well thank you kidar yeah. it was it was a pleasure okay. and that's it from today's gyan session catch us on itunes savan stitcher or any podcasting app you use do rate us on itunes and follow us on twitter facebook and instagram Stay tuned for more gyan on audiogyan.com. Till then, bye. Hello! It's been a great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish Thing, Anish welcomes ultra marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner. and what it actually takes to run a full marathon on cock and bull cyrus navin akash and shreyas talk about the korean band bts serving in the military and its repercussions on think fast varun and suchita discuss wing greens and their latest acquisitions and about the indian sexual wellness market and on shuny one shiladatya is joined by dinika bhatia ceo and founder of natigrities they talk about coming from a business family and dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt free snacking Once again don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcast.com we have some exciting new merch out there for you also do follow us on social media we are ivm podcasts on twitter facebook instagram and linkedin and do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to appreciate them rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them you can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com/ivmpodcasts and finally we would like to thank our sponsors this week Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tails, Kotak Privy League Program, and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks, guys. Without you, this would not be possible.
Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from.